and welcome to 13, the bi-weekly podcast where Colgate University community members answer 13 questions about their work. I'm your host, Daniel DeVries, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Colgate's Assistant Vice President of Counseling and Psychological Services and Director of Support Services, Dawn LaFrance. Dawn joined Colgate in 2001 as a staff psychologist, and since then, she's taken on additional responsibilities and duties, including overseeing all of the university's counseling services and Haven, Colgate's first ever sexual assault support center. Dawn earned her Bachelor's of Science in Psychology at Lafayette College and her Master's and PsyD in Clinical Psychology from the University of Indianapolis. Dawn, welcome to 13. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me here. Well, we are excited to have you here. You oversee Colgate's Counseling Center. Can you talk a little bit about how many folks work within the center and what services you provide for our students? Mm-hmm. I work with a wonderful team of clinicians and an amazing administrative assistant, our office manager. Um, so there are, um, and we also work really closely with Haven. So we kind of go back and forth and have some clinicians and other professional staff supporting both teams. Um, as far as the team that I get to work with at the counseling center, there are um, four other full-time clinicians who all work upstairs and see people in individual and group counseling. And then um, we have two adjuncts who help us out with the clinical work. The full-time clinicians also do a lot of outreach um, and prevention and education kinds of things with us as well. Over at Haven, there's a full-time clinician and an assistant director who does the outreach and education. But like I said before, we really support each other. So we have two meetings a week where we have both teams kind of come together so that we can really be thinking about how to support our students both that need help from a trauma-focused lens, but also more broadly, just mental health. Who's eligible for Colgate's counseling service? Can any students take advantage of what we offer here? Absolutely. We want every student who needs us to take advantage of what we offer here. So every student is, um, is more than welcome to come over for individual counseling, be part of our group counseling therapy program, or attend any of our outreach events. So We consult with coaches, faculty, staff, maybe one time or two time through something if they need some support, but our real focus is on the students and their mental health. So let's say I'm a student and, you know, it's late at night, I'm feeling overwhelmed, I think I may be depressed. What do I do if I'm on campus and I'm looking for help? Can you walk us through the process for new students that reach out to the Counseling Center? Sure. Um, So we've tried to make everything as, as accessible as possible. So Students can make an appointment by going to our website and finding information there. Um, There's a form that they can request um, an appointment through. They can email the counseling center. So if it's 2 a.m. and they're thinking, I really want to see somebody soon, then they can email the counseling center and um, get in touch with us that way. But what we've done this year is we've expanded our walk-in hours. So we used to have um, from 1.30 to 4.30 Monday through Friday um, consultation and crisis hours. But we've decided... um, just to make sure that we're as accessible as possible to extend those. So now we offer those from 9 to noon and 1.30 to 4.30, and we've changed the language to call them walk-in hours so that students don't feel like they have to be in crisis in order to come over. Um, and also some students deem crises different than others. So walk-in just means that we're available when they need us. So if a student has never reached out for counseling before, that's kind of the best entry point really is to come to one of those walk-in hours, meet with a counselor, and then decide on what their needs are. 
They may decide to come in for individual counseling again. They may decide to join a group therapy program. Or they may say, hey, that one time I got the advice or the support that I needed and I'm off to my day. Um, if it's the middle of the night and it's a crisis, though, we do have on-call counseling available that students can reach out to, um, sort of that safety net at night and on the weekends when we're not in the office. The other thing important, I think, along those lines to mention is because we um, we pivoted quickly, like all of us did during COVID, we figured out how to do telehealth. And now we're offering that as another option. So let's say the student is really worried about coming over to the counseling center for the first time. They feel like, oh, I'm not sure who will see me. Maybe they're just worried about those kinds of things. We can offer that first appointment by telehealth, too. So they can meet one of us through the screen, maybe increase their comfort that way, and then come over at another time for in-person if they choose to. Nice. How have Colgate's mental health services evolved since you first started working here in 2001? Yeah, I've been here a long time. So uh, we have evolved a couple of our different programs. So we used to see some students longer term, I would say, than we're able to do now. We live in a pretty rural area. There's not a lot of places to refer students to. So we really need to respond to all of the mental health needs here on campus. So we see a lot of students in sort of a short-term model. Sometimes even one session, like I mentioned before, students come over they kind of want to know what to do, and then they might come over again another time, but it's sort of a single session model, we call that. Um, so we've done that more, I would say, than we used to 20 years ago. We also have expanded our group therapy program. So we used to have a hard time getting groups off the ground and really um, getting students to come to them, but now we have a very thriving group therapy program. We have about 13 groups per week. Some are topical-based, some are for specific populations, others are very broad, but what we found is students really love them. So even during COVID, we did those online, um, and we'd have a bunch of faces on our screen and do group therapy together. Um, but that's something that has been a real highlight. Um, my colleague, Nikki Keating, oversees our group therapy program. We make sure to advertise it really well. We also think about what kinds of situations students are going through that Maybe they would do better learning from one another with a therapist than just from a therapist in an individual session. So then we make a group. So for instance, in the past, we've had a couple different students um, maybe dealing with grief issues on our caseloads, and we've decided to uh, kind of pull them together and then have a group. You know, you only need a group that's two or more people, and then you can talk through those issues and really learn from one another. So I'd say our group therapy program has helped us a lot. We also have a training program where we have um, – students going through their education that come and get some supervision from us as they start to see students. So they'll see some students that are struggling with adjustment kinds of things, homesickness. And that's been really great because that's one way that we're able to keep fresh in our work and make sure that we're up to date with all of the current practices. So you mentioned Haven, and that's Colgate Sexual Violence Support Center. And you folks just marked uh, fifth anniversary last month. Um, can you talk about the center, how it came to be, and what services it provides for students? Mm, I am happy to. I'm so excited that we have a center on campus that's focused to helping students with trauma, um, both from a prevention education standpoint and then also a treatment standpoint when necessary. A lot of campuses don't have a designated center. It's usually part of a counseling center or part of a Title IX office, but it's nice here that we have something separate that really feels like it's sustainable. It's five years now. There hasn't been a Colgate. There's no Colgate students here now that don't know a Haven at Colgate. So I'm excited about that and how long we've been doing that. But it it originated because there was a need for it. Um, 
students were feeling like there wasn't enough response for sexual violence on campus, and they came together with administrators and faculty um, to figure out what was needed. So we had an external review after a rally um, that people sort of voiced their concerns around things, and we had the external review. And part of that was really to develop a center. So we went from there and figured out where to put the center, how to do that, how to staff that, and decided it should have a really strong connection with counseling because um, all of our counselors are trauma-informed and we can really help each other and be a good network um, together. So so yeah, five years ago, we opened our doors. And since then, we have done a lot of different things. We have a very strong Haven Ambassador Program, which is um, volunteer students who really want to help out with the community. So we are just going through, we just finished training 14 new Haven ambassadors, most of them are first years, that just want to do good work here on campus. So they're going to help us with our programs and really get involved more and more. We're hoping to have some satellite hours where they'll kind of be out and about on campus so people might feel comfortable approaching them about different issues. So that's one thing that's come out of Haven, but it has been a really great partnership with an off-campus group called Help Restore Hope. And we've also been able to establish the STAIN program, which is a sexual assault nurse examiner program in town. That's a good segue for our next question, and that is, what is a SANE nurse, and why is Colgate's access to those professionals so important? Mm -hmm. So a SANE nurse is a sexual assault nurse examiner, and in a rural community like our own, it is um, not very likely to be able to access a SANE. So in the past, when somebody was sexually assaulted and wanted to um, collect evidence for a rape kit or get the help from a SANE nurse, they needed to be transported all the way to Syracuse. And even once they got to Syracuse, it might be quite a wait before they were able to meet with somebody for this pretty intense exam that they need to go through in order to collect that evidence. Um, so one of the, the things that we really looked into is how we could bring that kind of program closer here and work closely with Community Memorial to make sure that we had seeing nurses available here. Um, that's not an easy feat. So luckily, we worked with Liberty Resources and Help Restore Hope, who were able to put together a network of nurses get them specially trained for this kind of nursing, and have a nurse coordinator that oversees them so they're on call. So Mm. at this point, students can go to, or community members, so anybody can go to Community Memorial or the hospital in Oneida and request a SANE nurse who will be there within a half hour. So there's always somebody on call to be available, and it's also for community members. So I feel really good about being able to bring that kind of thing to such a rural area. And we want to make sure that the word is out about that so that students know they can access that. They can easily go down to get that. You know, we can arrange for transportation if they want to get down to Community Memorial. Or they can go down there, and the university doesn't even need to know that they have been down there. So with Liberty Resources and Help Restore Hope, that's a completely different entity than Colgate. So we have um, an advocate who's on campus and has an office in Haven. She comes on Tuesdays, but she doesn't work for Colgate. So if a student wants sort of a separate person to talk to that's not employed by Colgate and they want to keep everything completely confidential, they can meet with her or they can meet with a SANE, and we don't need to know about it. Sometimes we sign releases to make sure we are part of a team to help a student if they want us to, but we don't want students to feel like they have to do that. We just want students to get the help that they need, and we really trust this other agency to support them too. Nice. That was going to be part of my next question, and that is um, Colgate's work with local agencies and organizations. Like who, um, or I guess what agencies in the area help support our students' mental health? Mm-hmm. 
So that would be um, the one that I would look to the most. So they also offer telehealth so that if students can't get to their agency, they can help them in that way. Um, And then Community Memorial, I would say, would be the other one. Like I said before, there's not a lot of providers in the area because we're in such a rural area now. But now that more clinicians are doing telehealth, if somebody is licensed within New York State, they could help our students through telehealth. But that would be sort of separate, or it would be separate, and they'd really need to use their own insurance and their own financial means in order to get that. But we could help a student figure out how to get um, that situated if they wanted to do something outside of Colgate. Nationally, this has been in the news quite a bit, that there's a shortage of medical professionals right now, nurses, doctors, orderlies, that type of uh, profession. And I'm wondering if there are mental, if if there's a same issue among mental health practitioners. And if so, how do you make sure Colgate has enough resources to serve the students here? Mm -hmm. Yes, there is a national shortage of mental health clinicians. I think that especially younger people are more increasingly aware of mental health concerns and more willing to reach out for help than they used to. So you'd asked me earlier how how things have changed. And I think that one of the other areas that um, mental health help has changed is that people in the younger generation are much more willing to uh, sort of acknowledge if something doesn't feel right and get help for that. Um, There's much less of a stigma than there was for people my age, for instance, when I was in college. So I think that students are, are really wanting the resources and they're wanting the help. So um, within that also, there is a real decline, not, there's a deficit in the mental health clinicians available. Telehealth has helped that this year, but I can also share that I have a small private practice in town and I constantly have people calling me trying to get in to see me there and I'm just unable to respond to the need. And I always share referrals with people, but I'm running out of referrals for people because they just aren't available. So most people have a wait list. I am very proud to say at the Counseling Center at Colgate, we do not have a wait list. Um, We've never had a wait list. And that's one of the things that I really, I kind of like to brag about. Um, Sometimes there's a rumor around town that um, we have a wait list, but we really have not. And I think that the walk-in hours help because we're able to get people in really quickly. And then sometimes we see people every other week or even every third week if that's what they need. But we're able to really respond for what students need here. We've had um, really strong, supportive administration that has made sure that we're staffed the way that we need to be staffed in order to respond. Sometimes we have to cut back on the outreach and the other stuff that we do and just really focus in on the clinical needs in order to do that. But so far, I mean, knock on wood, so far we've been able to do what we need to do here. Nice. Are there any new therapies or treatments that you think have promise for the future and that you you know hope to provide at Colgate? Mm, that's a great question. So this isn't new, but this is something that I do and I do when I can. I use eye movement desensitization reprocessing. It's EMDR for short, but it's um, it's helpful with trauma and anxieties. So I am certified in that, and I, I certainly um, provide that to students who need that. I also am trained as a clinical hypnotist, so I use clinical hypnosis in my practice when appropriate um, and with consent from students. Uh, but I find both of those therapies really helpful and sort of a, in addition to what I learned in graduate school. Along those lines, the the stuff that I'm really interested in is um, thinking more about how the brain works and how we can help students in a mind-body connection. So 
language only takes us so far. So when we're sitting with somebody and somebody has to put their emotions or their memories into words in order to explain it, right there, that can be a barrier. So there's other ways to sort of think about how trauma is um, felt in the body and sometimes stored in the body and how to get that out through other forms of releasing that. So I really like to think about holistic psychology, think about yoga and other forms of activity that can help us, um, you know, and other ways of thinking about wellness. So when somebody comes to the counseling center, they're usually thinking they're going to talk through things. And they might be surprised that usually I'm also checking on, so what do you do for activity? That's really important. If you're sitting in front of your screen all day, you probably aren't mentally well. What else should you do? I also help people think about nutrition, think about good sleep. So some of the basics are so important, and students forget that. Um, So thinking about those types of things in more of a holistic way. We're also moving um, increasingly towards an integrated wellness program here on campus where we'll work closely with the Shaw Wellness Institute and student health services to really be thinking about that mind-body connection and that we, we really can't help people with their physical stuff without thinking about the mental stuff or vice versa because they're so closely related. But in the past, people really wanted to separate out those things and say if somebody was having a mental health issue, it was all about mental. And really what we're finding is there's such an overlap. So I think that's where the future is going to go. I think there'll be more and more stuff along the lines of like, Um, biofeedback and sort of neurodevelopment and really thinking about how people's attachment styles and how how they're how they develop even as young children affects them when they're older and what we can do if that development had issues while they were growing up how we can help them today with what happened before that's Mm -hmm. interesting yeah yes means yes is a six-week positive sexuality seminar led by student faculty, and staff facilitators. And that was created by a student in 2009. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what exactly Yes Means Yes is? Um, How do students participate? And what is the the outcome that folks are looking to achieve? Yeah. Yes Means Yes took on a life of its own that we never knew that it would um, when we first developed it. So Jacqueline Berger developed this program as part of her senior research project. And when she graduated, she left it with me. And she said, if there's ever anything you want to do with this, great. Um, At that time, I was working closely with Scott Brown, who used to be one of our deans here, um, on a committee that um, was looking at positive sexuality and how to help students um, really wrap their mind around what they want and empower them rather than always telling them what not to do. So this made perfect sense at that time. So we took a look at it. Great work. Um, Love that a student um, had figured out how to talk to other students about stuff rather than us administrators sitting around an oval table deciding how students want to talk about their sexuality. (laughs) Um, So we took Jacqueline's work and we decided that Scott and I would co-facilitate these conversations throughout the semester, just kind of pilot it, see how it goes. We had great response. So We bought every student that was in um, that group the book, Yes Means Yes, and um, went ahead and led conversations about positive sexuality, um, how to ask for what you want, get what you want, but also how to be really thoughtful about consent and those types of issues. And it went really, really well. So we um, decided after that to co-facilitate with other staff and faculty, get more people involved, different people would take different weeks. And then we started to elevate students, and they started to co-facilitate with us. And then we pulled back and realized that actually the conversation was even richer 
if we weren't always in the room. So then we um, trained some students who then would take it and just run with it and end up facilitating all of the programs and really just be supervised from afar by us. They've changed it over time because, as we've talked about, things change a lot within um, several years, and it's been a very fluid program. So we've added a lot of stuff. We've taken away some things, and we um, each year have one to two yes-means-yes interns that take a look at the syllabus and change it to keep it current. So we no longer provide the book because we feel like um, providing that book is a little outdated now. We provide excerpts, um, but other reading materials to go along with whatever they're reading or talking about. So we've made sure that it is um, increasingly inclusive, I would say, over time, making sure that we're talking about all types of sexualities and certainly not being um, like pigeonholing anybody or making people feel like they have to be a certain way to be in the class. Um, So we're trying to be very inclusive and being very thoughtful about how um, different people come to the table, their histories, and what they bring to the conversation. And students have absolutely loved it. So We took a break during COVID because um, it didn't seem that any student wanted to do more in Zoom, but we have revived it again this year, and we have two um, sessions per week going on now, and it sounds like it's going great from what I've heard, but I'm no longer in the room, so we really trust our students to lead a good conversation, and then they let us know if something comes up that was hard, and we talk about it and get them back on track again. Nice. Yeah. There was a recent article in the Chronicle of Higher Education about burnout among campus mental health professionals. It read in part, counseling centers are trying to keep up with requests for care, but that was challenging for most of them even before the emotional havoc wreaked on students by COVID-19 and political and social unrest. Keeping up is even harder now. More students are asking for help. Their suffering is more acute, and the pandemic has made it harder for centers to recruit counselors. How is Colgate working to help our counseling staff from burning out? Yeah, that was a great article. I've seen other articles that are pretty similar um, in lots of different places. And I've heard a lot of people talking about burnout, compassion fatigue. I've tried to be really thoughtful about that with our teams here and be as flexible as we possibly can be while responding to the demand. I think different students were affected differently by the pandemic. And I can say that some um, ended up not suffering at all. And actually, the pandemic circumstances worked in their favor. So I have heard students who have even as recently as this morning said, it was a lot easier figuring out the holidays when we were in the pandemic. I didn't have to go home and split it between a couple different families and all these other demands. I'd rather just go home for Thanksgiving and stay home, for instance. So I think that, you know, some students thrived during during the pandemic. Um, They're really good at being focused on their work Um, They maybe had less distractions, for instance, and that worked really well for some students. Other students had a very hard time and had really difficult situations. We've heard of students who have had to take care of younger siblings while they were working online. Um, Some have had to have jobs at the same time. So there's a lot of things that different students have tackled. I've heard the narrative that the pandemic was terrible for everybody and I just like to put it out there that it depends on the person in front of us. So I have been super impressed with the resiliency of some of our students. Many expressed excitement about being back here in the fall and appreciation that we are where we are now. And I think that exuberance and excitement carried them for for the first month, but then in some ways they took on more than they should have. So at this point in the semester, 
I'm hearing from students that they're exhausted, but I think it's because they're trying to catch up for lost time in a lot of ways. We had first years here who didn't get to experience their senior year of high school and then came here and tried to sort of catch up and do everything that they possibly could. So definitely the mental health effects are there and in a lot of different ways for different students. Mental health clinicians went through the same thing, though. So I think that we often think about the helpers as who they're helping and not always that they are human themselves. So I think that that's part of what we're seeing now is that we're all peeling back the layers of our own perhaps trauma or other things that we went through over the last two years at the same time as we're helping the person in front of us. So it's kind of the the one time I've experienced in history that we're all going through the same thing together because usually helpers are helping somebody else who is going through something different than themselves mm-hmm. at that time. But during this, we're all doing it together and we didn't have the answers. There was so much uncertainty. So in our different therapy appointments last year, we were kind of navigating it right next to people rather than a couple steps ahead like we like to be, you know. So I think that that's part of that burnout and that compassion fatigue is that a lot of the caretakers haven't really been taking care of themselves throughout all of this, and now we're really feeling the effects of that. So I think that it's important that we focus on what our own needs are and be flexible with ourselves and not demand perfection from ourselves, um, but demand being good enough and good enough is good enough. And there's some days where that's what we're going to be able to provide for ourselves and other people. Um, but if we're always expecting perfection, then people are going to get burnt out. So I'd like to lead in that way by example. And sometimes I make mistakes and just being honest about those things and asking for help and showing that I need that. I think it's also important to have sort of a well-rounded lifestyle and balance as possible, knowing that that's easier for some people than others. So I think just Trying to reinforce that on my teams has been important, Um, but I do think that it's been really hard for counseling centers to recruit good staff and retain them because of what they've been through. We've been super, super lucky. Last year, we had three searches, and we hired three amazing people, and I've been so happy this semester with our teams and just the dynamic that we have um, and just really appreciate that, especially when I um, compare that to what some other centers are going through right now. But but it's been it's been really hard. A lot of counselors have left their jobs to do private practice and um, and work in other places. And now that they can do telehealth from home, there's not much overhead too if somebody decided to do that. So there's different things in our field that we're kind of um, competing with. But I think that there's some really nice things about working on a college campus is that you have a team, you get to do outreach. None of my days are the same. I get to spend some mornings with you here on a podcast. I get to <laughs> get to do some other things um, like search committees and work on different teams and then also do the clinical work. So if you're in private practice, you're doing back-to-back clinical work all day, whereas I feel like we're a little bit more well-rounded here and we also have a team of supporters around us. I imagine the podcast is clearly the most exciting of all of those things. Of course. Uh, One of the things I've heard a lot lately and certainly no expert here and I don't do a lot of research on the subject, but I feel like in a lot of stories about mental health on campus, um, both Colgate and elsewhere, you hear a lot about trauma-informed counseling. What is that? Like, what does that mean? And how is that different from traditional counseling? Mm. I love that you asked me this question because I was just talking about this in a meeting yesterday. So people use that phrase a lot lately. It's, um, But it's important that we, we use it, but it's important that we do it. And I think that a lot of people 
sort of say that they're trauma-informed and maybe aren't trauma-informed. So the other thing, it gets confused with survivor-centric. So survivor-centric is really when somebody comes in my office, a survivor, and I am totally focused on them, and I believe their story, and I want to help them from their perspective. I'm lucky because I can be survivor-centric. Other um, departments on this campus can't be because they have to be more unbiased in their work. Title IX office, for instance, can't be survivor-centric because then you're leaving out another party in your work, so you really have to be more neutral. People mix up those terms, though, sometimes. So everyone can be trauma-informed. So every department can be trauma-informed, including faculty, staff, administrators, students to students. And trauma-informed really means that we understand how trauma affects different people. First and foremost, it affects everybody differently. Um, but trauma, um, trauma-informed work is understanding that the brain reacts to trauma in ways that is sometimes not logical. So in order to understand the brain, you really understand that um, there's different parts of the brain, and different parts of the brain are alerted to trauma or what we perceive in our environment to be traumatic differently. So when I am in a situation that might be... Um, emotional for me, distressful for me, part of my brain might be reacting very different than the same situation for you that maybe isn't as distressful for you because our histories are different. But when my brain is firing off, it's telling me to either fight, to flee, or to freeze, which might make me do some pretty strange things sometimes. Um, the front of my brain, which is much more logical, executive functioning, kind of telling me to slow down, this situation's different than another situation, that comes on to play after my reaction. So I have this quick reaction before the other parts of my brain tell me to settle down, which could make me do some things that others don't necessarily understand. So I used the example yesterday that somebody might run from a situation because um, on the news they've seen authority figures um, – police officers, for instance, really hurting other people. So then if they see somebody that represents a group of people that they're worried about because they've seen this over and over and over again, even if they didn't do anything wrong, they might run because the back of their brain is telling them, get out of here, this is dangerous to you. Mm -hmm. So that might be interpreted, though, by others as, oh, they're fleeing the scene, they're being disrespectful, um, a whole host of things that they didn't mean but it's what their brain told them to do out of survival mode. Mm. So if we can kind of understand how the brain works in a pretty rudimentary way, so you don't need to understand all of the neuro behind this in order to understand that the brain sometimes tells us to do things to survive that doesn't look logical and could be interpreted to others as irrational or disrespectful or whatever the case may be. It helps us be more empathic to a person. So when I can be trauma-informed and understand that, I might realize that somebody is reacting to me in a way that they don't intend to, that they are maybe putting some stuff on me about their past that isn't personal. It helps me to connect with that person and realize, oh, they're, they're not meaning to come across that way. It's not about me and them. It's about them and something else that happened. I can help interface with them differently. So to be trauma-informed is just to kind of understand that and also that um, – People don't heal from trauma in, in kind of a linear fashion. So you don't go from A to B each day, get a little bit better. Sometimes you get worse before you get better. So somebody might present for class, let's say, after a trauma, present for class, get all their work done for two weeks, be doing great, and then they sort of fall off and things get worse. But that's two weeks out. So for somebody who doesn't understand trauma and how it works, they might say, oh, they're faking it because for two weeks they were fine. 
But actually, that was just how trauma interacted with them and their body and what they did that in order to be trauma-informed, it's like, yeah, maybe that is what happened to them and their healing process is not linear. It's kind of up and down and sometimes all around, you know. So I think the more that our whole campus community can understand trauma, just the better that we can interact with one another, maybe be empathic, give each other some grace sometimes and help the healing process overall. You've made it to question 13. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, there Congratulations. you go. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so I try to ask something a little bit fun uh, mm-hmm. for the last question. And I want to ask in particular at Colgate. So colleges are often lampooned for some of the, I'm going to say, interesting methods that they've employed to help students reduce stress. And I'm thinking something like therapy cats or okay. something like that, which, and I love cats. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the most creative, uh, I guess, de-stressing type of event that we've held here? What was the reaction and why should it not be made fun of? <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's a great question. You told me no curveball. Come on. No, this, I'm uh, just picking. The, thir- the 13th question is always a, a slight curve. Uh, yes. Slight. So I remember years ago we used to do some scavenger hunts, and that's what's coming to mind yeah. now is that um, we do scavenger hunts and on different at different spots they'd learn different things. Um and to sort of think about that with college age, sometimes you think, oh, they're not going to like this. This is going to be stupid or they're going to think that we're too childish. But I remember students really getting into that because they they got to earn stuff and they got to learn things along the way and they'd actually make groups and compete with one another. Um, so that was a really good one. You brought to mind something that we're thinking about doing um, and I would love to see happen here is goat yoga. Oh, yes. So I've been hearing about this trend um, and have been, you know, Curious myself, I have not yet done it, but one of um, my colleagues had sent me a little blurb on it the other day and said, wouldn't this be great to think about trauma-informed yoga with goats? Um, So we may collaborate with others and see if we can have that happen. So something that people might kind of laugh at and think, oh, how funny, especially in farmland where we are now. But I think that it could be really effective, and I am a huge supporter of pets and animals. I love my three dogs and I can't wait to go home every day to get snuggled and all that good stuff and, and get all that emotional support that we get from our pets. Um, so whenever we can have animals around, I'm happy to encourage that. So more to come on that. I'll let you know how it goes. I'll sign up for goat yoga. <laughs> okay. And that was 13. Okay. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today, Don. I really appreciate it. Uh, tell your friends and family about the podcast. Uh, if anyone listening has any questions that they have uh, for Dawn, either about mental health on campus, the services that we provide, uh, feel free to send an email to 13 at colgate.edu, and that's 13 the number. I hope everyone has a wonderful week, and until next time, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of University Communications. Executive Producer, Vice President for Communications, Laura Jack. Audio Engineering by Brian Ness. Logo Art by Catrail Pritz. Research Assistance provided by Colgate Sophomore and Media Relations Intern, Mariana Lemon. And I am your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit colgatemagazine.com and colgateresearchmagazine.com for more in-depth university news and research stories.